afternoon. afternoon. I didn't say morning. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. Thank you to our Levites who led us in worship. Uh, It's like fighting back tears. Uh, You guys do such a great job. And the rhythm section, Victor, my goodness. That was like Bootsy Collins, like for a minute there. Wow. Um, very grateful to be here. Uh, my name is Jason Alexander. I'm on uh, week four of life in this hot place. Uh, and it actually rained for like almost 24 hours. It was amazing. My whole family was like outside soaking it up. But I'll admit, where we came from, it was like... That for like nine months straight. So I got to find a balance in my life somewhere. Go from all rain to all sun with no in between. Um, Let's see. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, Yes, the one who is to come. Uh, I'm going to uh, spend uh, our time. I'm going to spend your time, my time uh, in the 35th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, the book called Isaiah. Uh, so I don't have a slide for you. Um, uh, so you can find it in your in your Bible if uh, if you have one with you, or you can just listen. That works uh, just as well. Um, uh, and I want to try to interact with what I talked about last week. If you were here, and I'll, I'll describe some of that as we go along. So if you uh, weren't here, hopefully we can catch you up. Um, in uh, let's see, in 1977. Um, you, you may remember this, um, this was before I was born, but you may remember that this went on for quite a while. Um, yeah, I'm young. <laughs> Keep, remember that. Um, uh, 1977, there was an extremely bloody civil war in the country of Mozambique. Do you remember this? Lasted a long time. Um, I think it was officially declared uh, over in like 1992. So it was a long time. Um, and it, it was a super bloody affair. Um, let me just read you some of the stats. Um, it, just deaths from fighting, being killed in battle, being starved because of... Uh, Loss of food supply, that's one uh, really uh, effective um, strategy, right? To cut off the food supply uh, of your enemy. It's an estimated um, about 5 million people displaced because of this war. So having to leave their homes, their neighborhoods, their belongings, their families... About one million people lost their lives in this war. Um, is it, it was uh, total destruction, uh, destruction or, or almost total destruction to the infrastructure of the cities. And one of the most frightening things, and they're, they're still like, th- this isn't finished yet. They're still finding these. But this kind of indiscriminate scattering of landmines. You know what a landmine is, right? Like, you, if you're out walking and you step on a landmine, that, that could be it. Uh, you'll at least lose parts of your body. 
They're still finding landmines from this war almost 30 years, 30 years later. Um, and that's not to describe, and I don't want to, like, uh, it's gruesome, but the, the war crimes, the mass rapes and raids on villages and mutilation and executions, it's all the stuff of war. It's horrible. It's amazing to me that this could go on and almost off the radar for me. We're on the same planet, and this kind of suffering is happening. But in 2004, uh, a group of Mozambican artists were commissioned to make a piece which is uh, uh, installed in the British Museum, as far as I know, to this day. It's it's my dream uh, to see it. Um, but what, what they did was brilliant. They collected as many decommissioned weapons from this war as they could get their hands on. And they, they took all of these grenade shells and uh, rifles and landmines and they made this out of it. And it's about a seven-foot-tall tree made completely of weapons that were most assuredly used to take lives. You can see even, it's got this whole, like, um, on the ground, birds made of weapons, squirrels made of weapons. It's, it's unbelievable. What they called it even adds more potency to this image. They called it the tree of life. Isn't that powerful? I almost don't want to make too much of a comment on it because I think the image itself does some work on us. But let me say something about it. Um, They've taken something that was used to take lives and ruin peace. And they gathered those things together in this uh, unexplainably redemptive move, and they made something that envisions life. They've gathered up something that has been used to destroy, and they made out of it a picture of a future. This is something, this is very much like what we find, especially in the biblical prophets, but throughout the Christian Bible. This idea of God taking what is used to take life and reversing it and using it to describe a new future. God turning death and destruction into life. It's the way of the God of the Bible. It's how he rolls. So I want to let that sit because we're going to read some of Isaiah and there's something very similar to this going on in Isaiah, especially in chapter 35. Now, here's here's what I tried to describe last week. And this is I have as many problems with this as anyone. And I made it Um, (laughs) because there's just no um, real uh, precise way to describe uh, the story of the Bible. But I, okay, qu- thinking caps on? Yes. Okay, for those of you who, who were here last week. 
I described uh, the Bible as almost like a drama uh, that uh, God's people are invited to participate, to become actors in this drama. Okay, here we go. I described five acts. I always feel like i got to enunciate the T on that, acts. Uh, Do you remember what they were? Act one? Oh, you're looking. (laughs) Act one? Creation. Uh, Act two? Yeah, you want to put quotes around that because it's not not actually out of the scriptures. What? uh, Act three? Yeah, the most, most, uh, the the part of the story that we Western folk uh, skip over pretty conveniently. Israel. Four. Jesus, which is actually a continuation of the story of Israel. And so is the next act, which is? Yeah. And, and we live, I don't have a pointer, do I? Is there a pointer on this thing, a laser? We live in this space, the church. We're given a glimpse in Scripture of how things shall work out. Where God will put uh, things right. And remake, not just, not just cart us off to the sky, but remake heaven and earth. And fit us with new bodies wherein, uh, with which we can inhabit this new world. And spend all of our time there rather than sitting on a lawn chair like retirement with a Mai Tai actually working and serving and continuing to create and continuing to glorify God and trust Him. It's pretty awesome. Um, but, But what Isaiah does here, I think, uh, will give a sense for how or the extent to which God is trying to do exactly this, to remake things. And as it turns out, our faith, the the Christian faith, as, as it is called, is one that regards our bodies, our bodies. It's not just a religion of the soul. It includes our minds, our creativity, our pocketbooks, our possessions. But but the world that God is making, it's already started, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. It's already started. This restoration of creation is already underway through Jesus Christ. And it's that which we hope to embody and anticipate by the lives we live. So let, let's just read Isaiah. This is uh, my favorite chapter, I think, in the Bible, and you'll see why. If you've not read Isaiah 35 before, congratulations. Uh, you'll see what I mean. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice With joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen weak hands. Make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong Fear not. Look, your God. He will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain. uh, Oh, I'm not sure I like that. Uh, Here's the idea. Uh, Gladness and joy shall overtake them. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That last line you'll recognize from the very end of the Bible. Isn't it incredible? It's that should be the sermon, honestly. It should just sit with that for a week. See what it does with you or in you. Um, But it's surprising. I mean, this is excessive joy, right? And and if you've been reading uh, the book uh, Isaiah, You will be surprised when you got to chapter 35. There have been glimmers of hope. There's one in chapter 11 that I think this has much to do with. Uh, But uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's some dark scenes. There's some there's some dark words. Uh, Isaiah, like all of the prophets, Jesus included, can be quite heavy handed at times. When we come to chapter 35, it's almost like getting hit in the face. Because it's an abrupt left turn to this kind of joy that we've probably had glimmers of in life, but we've never really felt it to this extent. It's almost like we're unprepared for it. Now today, uh, you you know this has been mentioned, uh, green means, go ahead, but today, right? 21 years ago, I, I could probably ask those of you who are at least, you'd have to be like, what, 20, like 30 to remember? I don't know how when you start remembering things. Uh, probably remember earlier than nine, I guess. But um, you remember where you were, right? I remember I was at my job that I already hated, and then this happened. But this was a disorienting moment for all of us. There are people out there that do not like us. They do not agree with us. They don't look at the world the same way we do. And if you remember, you probably felt vulnerable, right? We can we can go down like we can be taken out. We are flimsy. The prophet Isaiah says of Egypt, I love this in chapter 30. He says, be very careful about reaching out to Egypt for help. It it won't go well. They can't help you. They're just men. They're they're not spirit. We all felt that. November or September 11th. I did anyway. 
See, Israel has a series of 9-11-like events in her history. And the greatest of these tragic moments is the exile. You're familiar with this period of Israel's life? The exile? It's bad. It's bad and it actually sets the, the tone for the rest of what we call the Old Testament well into the New. So that when Matthew opens his account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins with the exile. See, exile was a problem. It was a theological problem. Where is God? How do we access Him? Where is the church? Where's our Bibles, right? That might be in our terms. It was a political problem. And, and it worked together to make Israel, uh, or in this case, uh, Judah, uh, to make them quite discouraged on the brink of despair for a time. Um, and that seems to be what happens in exile. There are generally about two outcomes. You either become very discouraged and teeter on the brink of despair, and you begin to believe if, if the Babylonian gods, Babylon was the, the nation that finally uh, brought Jerusalem, Judah to its knees, if the Babylonian gods could take out the Lord, the God of Israel, then maybe their gods are better than ours. You'd be very tempted to believe your gods either weak or doesn't care about you. That's what the prophets are aimed at trying to correct. So there's that sort of despair on the one hand, and that often leads to, or the other option is, uh, in a kind of assimilation. You just make your home in exile. You forget about going to church. Going to church is a horrible way to describe it, because it's much, much bigger than that. But you forget about life in the temple. This is the period when much of the Bible becomes a written text. It's the period that they trace the development of the smaller gathering, the synagogue, to this moment because Israel is in free fall. They're not actually, but if you were an Israelite, that's what you'd feel. If you were a Judahite, that's what you'd feel. Where is God? Isaiah, in chapter 35 of Isaiah, has much to do with giving a future vision of hope even beyond a restored monarchy. Here's what I mean by that. Israel's kings all fell to their knees because of Babylon. And there wasn't another legitimate king until the New Testament talks about Jesus. That was the end of the kings in Israel. But, but Isaiah gives a hope that extends far past and if you, if you read the whole of Isaiah, you find um, the stuff that we read in 35, it doesn't happen fully by the end of the book. <laughs> but even when Israel gets her wits about her and they make her great again, even then they will be nothing like what Isaiah is saying is coming. This holds out hope beyond the restoration of the nation. And what's going on in chapter 35? Look at this. I mean, it, it is, it's breathtaking because for some reason, I think I know the reason, but for some reason, the, the natural, as we call it, world, I think creation is a better word, but creation is kind of going haywire. I wish it would happen here. I'm already tired of the sand. <laughs> 
But you see, you see the sand in the hot, burning wilderness being transformed into this lush uh, environment. And it's a, it's a metaphor, right? Something like that. By the way, if you're really interested in going to Israel, me and another brother from Chicago are leading a tour next May. See me if you're interested. We could show you exactly these places, what that Isaiah is talking about. But, but it's, an, it's an actual image. It's, it's a metaphor, of course, for something real. But it's an image of a place where no life is possible becoming like this. The, it's like turning the arva, the, the, the dusty, dry place with bad, bad for agriculture, into like the cedar forests in the north in Lebanon. That picture was actually taken near my house in Washington. That's what it looks like everywhere. The rain does have a benefit. It's beautiful. <laughs> or something like this. But it's turning what is unusable and inhospitable into something more than hospitable, glorious even. I say, why is creation acting like this? Why is it behaving like this? Well, it tells us in verse 4, Hinei Elohechem, Nakam Yavo, look, your God comes with vengeance. See, creation is responding to the advent of God. God is making his way to the world and creation can't help but be changed. The world around the exiles is turned into a lush garden. And this is just how the Lord rolls. This is what happens if you get too close to him. You grow. <laughs> Do you remember the Chronicles of Narnia? Um, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Remember when Santa comes to the blizzardy, uh, frozen uh, forest? Maybe you saw the movie. And as he's coming behind him, in his wake, behind his sleigh, all the snow is melting and spring is coming. Well, C.S. Lewis got that from this. That's what it's like when God comes to town. Darkness scatters. And this vision of a transformed creation sends a beam of light into our own dark minds and hearts and gives us a sense of what to look for, what to hope for, what, to, 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 to teach us what, what we imagine will happen, to help us dream the right dreams, to want the right things. It's giving a baseline or a horizon for us to look at, to aim at, a target. God is showing what the future shall be like. And the whole point of showing the future is not just to say that's what it'll be like there. Isaiah would be wasting his time to say that. But to tell the discouraged, those who are tempted to assimilate, that now be encouraged. Do you have a hurried heart? That's the phrase here in Isaiah. Do you have a rushed heart? I do. <laughs> uh, you'll get to know me. I'm, I'm a full-blown mess. Like, I'm worried about... Like, my eyes started turning pink. You helped me out uh, with the eyes. Uh, my eyes started turning pink. You, they're, they're, I don't know if it's sand or what being here. I thought I was dying. I, I thought for sure this is the end. My, whose eyes turned pink? I've never seen that before. 
But that's how I am. That's how I interact with the world. I'm always afraid. I mean, I can tip over easily. That's all of us. Well, say to people like Jason, look, your God's coming. It's kind of, wake up. Come on. Wake up. What are you afraid of that for? Why are you so worried about that? Look what the future holds. That's what the prophets are always trying to do. How are you doing? Okay. Um, now, um, everything that's happening in Isaiah chapter 35 is put in uh, um, greater relief. Uh, it, it pops off the page more if you happened to read chapter 34. That's a, uh, a basic principle of reading, I suppose. <laughs> read what comes before. Um, but, but chapter 34 and chapter 35 really do form a unit within the, the flow of Isaiah. And chapter 34 is just like chapter 35, exactly almost, except the mirror image. Because there, for some reason, and people haven't been able to figure out quite why, uh, but the, the focus in chapter 34 is Edom. You've heard of Edom? Edom, if you trace it back, is connected to the people that came from uh, Jacob, who becomes Israel, stay with me, Jacob's brother Esau. So it's, it's focused on like Israel's long lost brother for some reason. There's some reasons why maybe, but, uh, but for some reason Eden takes a beating and Edom takes a beating in chapter 34. It's almost like Eden is a stand in for the nations. Uh, in one of the Aramaic translations of Isaiah, they actually talk about Edom as being Rome. So it's almost like Edom is a stand-in for the oppressive regime. But there, these flourishing cities, Botsra and these the cities in, in Edom, are, are transformed as well. But there, instead of flourishing and creation respond, responding and cedar trees growing and crocuses blooming everywhere, instead, it's turning into like a parking lot, hot asphalt, burning pitch and tar. And, and it's a no city. Like the cities are like removed. And all of the wildlife is, is summoned. Come on back. We're gone. No more people here. You can have at it. And it talks about the place being overgrown. They're metaphors because it can't really be on fire and host a diversity of animals. But owls and jackals and whatever a night hag is. And these, these things will come and inhabit the place that the Lord depopulated. And in verse 30, uh, let's see, 34, verse 8, it says that this undoing of creation, this turning a beautiful place into an ugly, uninhabitable place is of the result of the Lord's vengeance. That's what it looks like when God takes vengeance. Now, you heard the word vengeance and how many of you felt icky? Yeah, right? We don't like it. It's, it's a horrible idea. It's mostly horrible because of you, though. <laughs> it's mostly horrible because our notions of vengeance have to do with our own notions of anger and our own emotions and passions which fill this word out for us. It's not as, as ugly as of a word in the Bible. 
uh, the, the Hebrew word nakam. But, and so maybe because of our trappings with the word vengeance, that's not the right word. Maybe something like redress or putting right. But God comes and takes and uh, enacts some kind of redress or vengeance on Edom, and it looks like the undoing of the nations. It looks like the undoing of the oppressor. Vengeance has two sides to it almost, like two sides of the same coin. If you worship at the altar of efficiency and success, and you, you, you serve gods that are in fact no gods and could care less about you. They can't guide you. They can't teach you. All they do is reflect your own selfish desires. If you live like that, only in the interests of self and the empire and whatever else, when God comes to put things right, you will be one of the wrongs he has to deal with. And, and maybe not you, but your life, the things you're contributing to his good creation. When God takes vengeance, it will be a bad day for you if you've rejected God the whole way. It will be a bad day for the nation that has rejected the will of the Lord the whole time through thinking they're serving God. That's what Israel always thought, by the way. Thinking they're serving God. We're doing the will of the Lord, but it's really about you and your empire. For you, when God's vengeance comes, duck and cover. Now, if you are those who, as Jesus announces on his Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the right, you shall be satisfied. If you're on the other side of vengeance and you're saying, God, bring vengeance, fix this, which is the theme of the prayers of Israel, right? Make this right. It's not right. I heard... um, I was listening to a lecture uh, by Miroslav Volf this week. Uh, I recommend Miroslav Volf to you. <laughs> wonderful writer, wonderful teacher. Um, but he, he said something about uh, the homeless. It really caught my attention. I'll try to remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, he's describing the plight of the poor. He said, uh, it's, it's, easy to forget or it's impossible to uh, you know overestimate the hundreds of wounds and humiliations and indignities suffered by the homeless every day and i thought like i've never i didn't never thought of that the humiliations of being homeless the indignities you suffer Because you don't have what all of us have so conveniently. They deal with that every day. Those who see that, those who see what other people just like us endure, and see that it's wrong, they turn towards God not just with their prayers, but with their feet and their hands and their pocketbooks. And they try to be a part of a restoration rather than just conveniently waiting for God to take us to heaven one day and sing in hymns. But for us who long and pray for God's redress, it will be lovely when it comes. Look at this. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. All that transformation of the the barren land. Why? Because God's come. Look at with vengeance. On the one hand, God's vengeance brings 
destruction. On the other hand, God's vengeance brings life. Two sides of the same coin. Isn't that amazing? But Isaiah is describing what it will be like when the Lord comes. And all of this is for the sake of encouraging the weak. What are you worried about? You're worried about something. Come on. Think, you don't have to say it out loud, but think about it. We're all worried, right? <laughs> Some are better than others. I try to get around people. Scott and, Dan, Scott and Danielle don't seem to worry as much. Like they, I like to be around them. Like I feel secure with you. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> Just wait. Okay, that's fine. Um, but we worry about all kinds of things. You're worried about your church? You're worried about your nation? Worried about your pocketbook? How about your career, your kids? How about the kids you go to school with? (laughs) How about about, uh, family members, illnesses, health? See, we can be run by discouragement. Our hearts can be hurried, not peaceful. Our hearts can be in a rush because we're we're frightened. We don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? What's the future going to look like? And guess what? When you don't know what the future is going to look like, guess what your life looks like? Guess where you spend your energy doing when you don't know what the future is going to look like? Or anger, or pride, or some ugly idolatry to occupy our time. But when we have no horizon, no vision for what shall happen, we have no direction in the present. Nothing to give shape and meaning and direction and guidance to our lives. We don't know what to do with ourselves. But if we have a sense of how things go, and if we have a sense that how things shall be have already started to happen in the present, that's the testimony of the New Testament, by the way. It's already begun in Christ. We start to mimic and imitate and reflect what things shall be one day. So that we grab hold of that restored creation and as best we can implement it right here. So that we can embody some of what's coming then now. Is your brain busted trying to think about that? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. You know, I don't apologize for that because that's not my place to apologize for that. That's how the Bible portrays things. Our lives are to be soaked in the visions of the future that Scripture offers us. This is why we read the Bible. But this is aimed at giving morale to people who are scared. This is aimed at helping the exiles to not give in to fear or to the nations around them. That's, by the way, what the Israelite kings did. They gave in. They wanted to be like everybody else. They want to be God's people, but they also want to be cool. (laughs) Right? We know how that goes. We're trying to do the same thing, right, in the church? Look how cool we are. I rem- well, I remember... Um, never mind. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not cool, so I'm, I'm learning that slowly. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. And I, I mentioned that this vision starts, has started already. A little later in Isaiah... Now, this is from the period 
um, just after there's an egg, end to this exile. So you imagine um, coming home or a homecoming. And all the people who went into exile, probably most of them have grown old. Many of them have died. But their kids are now going back to a land they've never been to. They only heard stories about it. And they come back to Jerusalem. They're going to start over, start the nation up and start the religion back up and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and get back to business. And it's a mess. It's a struggle. (laughs) That's what Isaiah beginning at chapter 56 to the end of the book is all about. What's it look like when you finally come back? You still need to trust God as it turns out. But, But there's another... Another vision or another indication of how the future shall be. And in the middle of this, the prophet says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are found. You're familiar with this passage, right? I understand before I got here, you just did a whole series of sermons out of Luke chapter 4, where this is quoted almost, uh, well, it's a sophisticated quotation, but it quotes most of this. But it leaves off in Luke 4. I don't know if you noticed this. but what, So there's this scene. How you doing? We're, doing We're almost at the tail end, promise. Stay with me. So there's this scene where Jesus comes back to his home church. He's had his bar mitzvah. He's a good young Jewish boy who gets an opportunity that Saturday, I suppose, in service to do the scripture reading. And he's handed uh, the prophet Isaiah. Um, So at least he had probably, if he had the whole book of Isaiah, it's like 24 feet long. It's, It's big. So you can imagine, like, here you go, Jesus. And And Jesus unrolls it to this passage. He says, he starts reading it. He says, this today is happening in your faces. And then he goes and he sits down. And everyone's like, now? Like, now? That is happening now? Like, that may happen one day. But Jesus says that I embody... What Isaiah said would happen one day. But Luke, when he writes this, Jesus is not shown to be reading this part about his vengeance. Really interesting. And I don't think it's because Luke's afraid when they hear the word vengeance. They're like, oh, no, vengeance. Like, no, we're just positive stuff here, Jesus. No. Jesus meant the whole passage, of course. See, what Jesus was doing was the vengeance of God. Jesus redressing the world's problems. Jesus shows up and he's like, all these blind people, this isn't right. All these depressed, broken down people, it's not right. All these marginalized lepers, how you treat those who work for Rome, how how you treat each other, it's not right. And God starts to bring judgment in Jesus Christ upon all the sinful behavior. And what's it look like? Well, it depends who you are. If you're one who's beholden to your religion, it, fe- it stings. You want to get rid of Jesus. But if you're one who's been on the margins frightened, Jesus welcomes you forward. He says, come here, I want to, I want to make you new. Amen. Amen. But look, 
little later in Luke, after that, there's a scene where John the prophet, John the Baptist, is because he has a very similar message to Jesus, similar. Now, it's not exactly the same, but he ends up uh, being arrested. And when he's in jail, he asks some of his disciples, find Jesus and ask him, is he the one? Is he the one? Is he Isaiah 35? Is he Isaiah 36? Probably not. Probably what John was asking, is he Psalm 2? (laughs) Psalm 2 is where he says, God's king will smash the nations like pots. (laughs) Is he like, is he the victor, the king? Go ask him. See what he says. We got to know. I want to make sure I'm in jail for a good reason. And they come to Jesus and say, John wants to know, are you the one that we're waiting for? Are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says, well, uh, tell John what you've seen. Uh, the blind. Well, here, here's what he says. When, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight, The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or blessed is the one who can see, who can see what's going on here. Some of you aren't going to like it, because you want vengeance. So I'm all about vengeance, Jesus says. But it's not what you're thinking, is it? It's not me dropping Rome to its knees and killing everybody, is it? Your expectations are not being met. No, instead, go back and read Isaiah. In Jesus' whole ministry, there's a whole... In His wake, wherever He goes, people are remade. Dead kids are given back to their grieving parents. I mean, it's unbelievable. Everywhere Jesus goes, anything He touches, it's restored. It's like those Mozambican artists giving an indication every time Jesus puts his hands on someone and makes them clean and welcomes them back in or heals the blind. It's like a signal. This is what's coming, everybody. Do you see it? It's like the the tree of life made of guns. Look what God's doing with what you've done in his world. The one who is to come. See, Jesus comes to implement what Isaiah 35 described in beautiful poetry. Then, as Isaiah said, the, the lame shall leap like a deer. So what is this going to do for us? <laughs> uh, of course we'd ask that, uh, given our consumer backdrop. What does this mean for me? What's the takeaway? Okay, well, there, there are some takeaways. I think there are. But I want to be careful. You'll hear me a lot. I'm bad at the practical side. You'll have others for that. Um, I wrestle with that. Uh, some of because I believe we rely too much on what I need to do. And some of this hard work is what we need to do as a community. But Jesus embodied the new age. Do you know what Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians? That if anyone is in Christ, what does he say? Yeah, he is a new creation. The Greeks actually says they're new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. 
There is a new creation. And if you are in Christ, you are a part of it. If you are in Jesus Christ, you become part of that restored creation. What Jesus is, we shall be one day. We are, we are to embody as much as we can, given our feeble attempts at this whole church thing. We all aren't great at it. God knows that. God works with people. God can take guns and make them into implements of joy. Like the prophet said, he takes swords and spears and turns them into backhoes and vine knives. God can make good things out of your bad. But you see, we are the people who are in that new creation and we are now called to embody. That is, do what Jesus did as much as you can. Now we have limits. I don't know if any of you can heal, but we can in many ways heal. We can bring healing and good news and restoration. We can uh, make those who feel constant humiliation and indignity feel valued in the love of God. We can be about what God wants rather than what we're afraid of as a community. But see, that all starts with knowing and getting our wits about us. What's the future going to be like? And then doing our best to trust God with that. So how, how many are stuck? In this despair. That's why Isaiah said these words. So that you wouldn't be discouraged. Tell them. If you know someone who's hurried of heart, tell them. Look, God's coming. God's going to do something big. It's already started. Get excited. Get encouraged. I know it's dark out there, but there's light here. Now, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Do you have your communion... uh, What are those called? Thimbles. Cups. Yeah, hourglasses. Because this, this meal is the same story. Think of the wood upon which the life of the Lord was exhausted. Think of that dry, bloodied, piece of wood. See, what Rome did with the whole crucifixion was to say, give us a reason. Go ahead, oppose us. Look what we do to those who oppose us. You didn't test Rome. Crucifixion was a way to keep you afraid. (laughs) Lives are lost if you test the empire. If you push back on the political... uh, Situation and say or suggest there's another way or another king, meet the wood, meet the cross. But from a place where lives were extinguished for the church, that's where we believe life leaps out. We believe that this wood where the Lord was killed, that's the symbol of our hope. That's our tree of life. A machine gun turned into a tree from which the nations can come and pick fruit. A cross, an execution rack, transformed into a place where the nations can be forgiven and find new life. That's 
the beauty of the cross in this meal. It's not just that Jesus died. If Isaiah had stopped at chapter 34, I'd be bummed out and and scared. If Jesus only lived a good example to show us a better way of life and then he died, I'd be scared and I wouldn't be a Christian. There's no use in that. I don't need a better way of life or a new... I mean, we need new morality, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for actual life. See, Jesus is the one who comes and embodies that new life, and he himself is that new life. So with that, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this meal. Jesus, we thank you for not leaving these beautiful ideas as mere ideas. You've given uh, these words long before the death and resurrection. But they're still giving meaning because you came and filled them out. You gave these words. um, You incarnated them. You made them real. They're not just ideas or something to encourage us, but they are in Christ realities a reality that by your mercy you've allowed us to be a part of. We thank you. Strengthen our weak hearts, please, Lord. In this meal, strengthen our, our, our feeble knees. Um, those of us struggling to believe, grant us the ability to see even a sliver of the hope you have. Uh, we thank you for the bread and the cup. Um, it is our confidence. And all of this is in the name of Jesus Christ.